Welcome to another episode of the Cubic Report. Today I'd like to go back in a time warp more than 30 years ago when still in the Worldwide Church of God and tell you about visiting Christians in Ukraine shortly after the USSR fell apart in 1991. This formed 15 independent nations. When this happened, a remarkable development occurred in the world of faith, which was a big surprise to us. We discovered that there were thousands of people who worshipped God in a manner similar to ours. We found people who kept the Saturday Sabbath, along with many other tenets of our faith, that they drew out from the Bible itself. It was a surprising revelation and revolution that we first found out about from a few of their immigrants who came to America in 1991. I first met with their leader and a group of 13 others who settled in Port St. Lucie, Florida. He told me an incredible story of faith and standing against the giants of oppression and atheism. He also told me that I should go to Ukraine myself and meet some of these people. There were more than 3,000 of them in Ukraine, 4,000 in Romania, and 3,000 in Moldova. So, indeed, I did go to Ukraine in the fall of 1992, and I want to share this adventure with you. This journey opened my eyes to a greater reality of God's working with people in this world. Christ will return to this earth, and he will marry his bride, as spoken of in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. But who will that bride be? Is it just us, our church? Is it more than us? Who will be there, and who will not? What follows is my report to a congregation in Pasadena, California, about this adventure, how it came to be, and its implications for us. So I invite you now to join me in my address on September 28, 1992, immediately after arriving home to Pasadena, California, from visiting Transcarpathia, Ukraine. This is the first time that I've been here in the Imperial Church. Today is the Feast of Trumpets. It's a time when Jesus Christ will return back to this earth. And as stated in Ephesians 5, we are the Bride of Christ. The Church symbolizes the Bride of Christ that is preparing itself to meet Christ when he comes. And we memorialize in advance, as a shadow of things to come, the return of Christ and the Church. But who will it be that Christ will come back to and marry in the first resurrection? That's a question I have, and I'm not sure, after the last two weeks, exactly who will comprise the body, the group, that Christ will come back to. Will it be baptized members of the Worldwide Church of God? Yes, I truly, honestly believe that the group here who is understanding the plan of God that has repented of his or her sins, that has received the Holy Spirit of God that very literally understands what the Bible has to say, is among those who will be part of the marriage to Jesus Christ. But is that all? Will there be others? I think these questions are questions that we perhaps should ask ourselves. In fact, not all baptized members of the Worldwide Church of God will be in the resurrection. There will be many who will not be in that resurrection. Some will be taken. Some will be left. It's only those who prepare themselves that are clean and washed and unspotted from this world 
as those who have prepared themselves, who look very seriously and soberly to the return of Jesus Christ that will be there. Will it be a collective church with a name? Or will there be other individuals? Will there be other people involved in this marriage between the Lamb and his bride? John Carlson, the director of our operations in Germany, the regional director of our German office, and I have just returned from a trip to western Ukraine. And we lived for five days among Sabbath keepers. In fact, the last sermon that I gave was in a Sabbatarian church in western Ukraine, in the town of Rokosova, five, six miles north of the Romanian border. That was last Sabbath. And I'd like to tell you some about that experience because I found it to be most interesting. We didn't know what we were getting into. In fact, we still don't know what we're into after visiting in that area. We have found a group of Sabbath keepers who have obeyed the word of God for years under communism and totalitarianism. All this group keep the Passover. They do not keep the Roman holidays. Some of them keep the holy days, just as we do, and observe every single one of them. They believe in water baptism. They keep the dietary laws of Leviticus 11, and while we lived with them, we got served excellent food. Didn't have to worry at all about reading any kind of labels, not that there were any labels to read. They heartily uphold the Ten Commandments of God. In fact, in their new house of prayer, they call it, or their house of worship, that's what they call their church buildings. In this particular one, which was just being finished under construction, and because we were there, they haven't been meeting in it yet because it isn't finished, but because John Carlson and I came, they had a special service held there just out of respect for us. And over us, like this, in this auditorium, are the two tables of stone of Moses with the, with the Ten Commandments written in the Ukrainian language. They don't smoke. They also don't drink. They don't believe in abortion. They believe that they should come out of this world, and they are very, very literal about coming out of the world. TVs, televisions are discouraged, although not completely banned. John Carlson and I stayed in their homes and spent hours in discussion with their leaders. In fact, stayed with the leaders on this trip. This trip has Mr. Carlson and myself wondering about how and where else is God working? Are there any other individuals that God is working with? And what about the future? And what about our contact with them? One of the sermons, we had two services last Sabbath, one at 10.30 and one at 3 o'clock. Interesting, same as we have here today. But in one of the services, the individual speaking, he was a deacon, not a, not a pastor, said that for 10 years they have been praying that they could find a group that believed like they did. And he read from 1 Kings 19, verses 12 through 19, which we'll take a look at a little bit later on, about Elijah who was doing the work of God and was doing a powerful work of God, a very effective work of God. But he got weary, he got tired, he got discouraged and said, I alone am doing what I should be doing, God. God said, 
Elijah, there are 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And this example was used in the sermon last Sabbath to illustrate the contact between the worldwide Church of God and the 3,000 Sabbatarians in western Ukraine in Transcarpathia, a passage that I have thought of often when we have come in contact with others who also believe. It certainly has given us things to think about. We left these people on a very high note. They told us that others have come from the West to visit with them, from Switzerland, from Australia, from other parts of the world. But they said there was something about the spirit that Mr. Carlson and I had that was different from the rest. And they said they felt close to how they felt to us. My conclusions about what our experiences have been are not completely formed. The future and time will tell. How did all this come about? How was it that we even got to go there and had any interest or got to know any of the people involved? This all began a little over a year ago when Ken Smiley, pastor of the Port St. Lucie, Florida church, called me and said, Vic, he said, we have some Ukrainians, some Ukrainian immigrants that came over and they have found this church and they want to start attending. I thought I'd let you know about them. I know that with many of you I've discussed this, but I thought just to make the whole story complete and give you the complete background, I'll give you a short version of how all this came about. What happened is that these people, a group of 14, which basically comprised one extended family, came from Ukraine as religious refugees. In order to qualify as a religious refugee, you have had to have served time in prison. And the leader, the patriarch of the group, was a man by the name of Michael Palchi. A little man, maybe this tall, long, wispy beard. I went to meet him, this was last June, and his whole family. And when they came to Port St. Lucie, they had been sponsored by the Methodist Church, but the Methodists keep Sunday. And one of the first questions they had for the Methodists was, where is there a Sabbath-keeping church? And this was not what the Methodists wanted to hear since they had sponsored them to this country and made them feel so welcome. Methodist says, we don't know where, these, where there is a Sabbath-keeping church. But the woman who was helping these people, getting their housing and getting their uh, matters taken care of, had been a former prospective member of this church. And she says, oh, I know where there's a Sabbath-keeping church, the Worldwide Church of God, and they meet right here in town. And she got a hold of Mr. Smiley, who went to visit them. And he found that they believed in many things that we did, and they expressed an interest in coming to church. And they also dragged this PM back to church to translate uh, for them. I mean, how else would they understand the Word of God? And for the next eight months, she kept coming to church until one of them got to know English enough to where they could translate. Anyway, they attended church, and uh, I went to visit them. Some of the stories they told me sounded too phenomenal and almost too good to be true. I didn't even believe that all the things were possible, but they told me how in 1949 they came to understand that they ought to be keeping the Sabbath. Michael Palchi, as we found out when we were visiting in Ukraine, was the one who organized and founded many of the 32 Sabbath-keeping churches that comprised 3,000 members. 
He was a Sunday minister, Sunday-keeping minister, and had been visited several times by a person who believed that he should be keeping the Sabbath. And he always rejected and said, no, Sunday is a day of worship. We're not going to be turning to Judaism. We're not going to be turning to the Sabbath that the Jews keep, and certainly not here in Ukraine, and certainly not here in 1949, which was a bad time. It was after World War II. Stalin was in power. Religion was forbidden, and he wasn't about to start keeping Saturday. But then in church, on two successive Sabbaths, a woman saw a vision, and of course, this may be something that may be difficult for us to comprehend since we don't have people seeing visions normally. The term in Ukrainian is videnya, which means video. Uh, she saw video from God in church, and we termed it VHS, very Holy Spirit. <laughs> but anyway, on two successive Sabbaths, she saw this vision that stated that they ought to be keeping the Sabbath. And after the second time, Michael Palchi said, we are going to start keeping the Sabbath. And several of the congregations were turned to keeping the Sabbath over the next several years to where the number of these people has grown to about 3,000. And Sabbatarians in Transcarpathia form the third largest religious group. First two are the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. And the Sabbatarians form the third largest church. Well, I was visiting in Florida with Michael Palchi. He told me about thousands of others back there. And he said, please go and visit them. Well, I thought that after several months and having several telephone conversations with them and him telling me that by him attending our church, he feels that we are his church and that he feels very comfortable in our church and his family attended with him, uh, mostly his three daughters and families. Uh, that were with him, he uh, asked me several times if I would go back and visit. And actually, a year ago, about this time, well, a little over a year ago, uh, I planned to go and visit. This was in August. And just that month, the coup took place, and we just figured that that's a bad time to go. It might be good to have things blow over first before we go. In November, we again planned to visit. This time, Dr. Hay and I planned to visit. But again, there were certain difficulties that took place, and we just felt like it was not a good time. There were a lot of questions. Where are these people? Even though we were given addresses, we, it just didn't sound real. It sounded too good to be true. And so we thought, let's wait till spring. When I was going to the European conference in May of this last year, thought maybe that would be a good time, but we had some, uh, we had a family emergency, uh, my wife's mother died, and we felt that's not a good time to go at that time. But finally this summer, we decided to go for it, and John Carlson and I both went. As we were making our preparations to go, and as I was visiting with the Ukrainians, I had been down there three times to Florida to visit with them, making it part of stopping by after church visits. One of the Ukrainians, one of the uh, husbands of the granddaughter of Michael Palchi, you, you don't have to remember all these relationships, uh, but the husband said, I have a brother who lives in Zingen, Germany. He's a Sabbatarian. 
And perhaps he could lead you and take you through Western Carpathia because he's from there. I thought, well, now you tell me. Uh, this is getting, you know, more interesting now. And also interesting about the Sabbath keepers in Zing and Germany. So there's a whole group of Sabbatarians meeting there. I tried to call him or ask Henry Sturkey, who was our pastor in Zurich, Switzerland, to call him, but there was really no, he didn't have a telephone number, and he was at an address that was somebody else's. He had just moved or whatever. But Henry Sturkey remembered that there were a number of Sabbatarians who came to a public Bible lecture in Zurich back in 1990. And he thought, just as a long shot, I'm going to call the person I know. His name is Igor Mertke, uh, a Russian first name, German last name, and see if he knows about this individual. When he called Igor, or his name is Edgar in German, sounds more acceptable, I guess, called, he was called by um, this person, uh, by, by Henry Sturkey, I should say. Igor said, well, of course I know him. He was at services yesterday. Oh, interesting. So uh, we made contact with this group. So then I decided that when I would go over to Ukraine this time, that I would stop by in Zurich, and we'd go visit these people. And this was two weeks ago, last Sunday. Henry Sturkey and I did go over to this group, and they all assembled there. There was about 15 of them or so, and wanted to talk with us and meet with us and talk about uh, our common interests in the Sabbath, etc. And one of them actually wanted to go with us to Ukraine, but it didn't work out because he was attending school. And as it turned out, it was better that he didn't. I'm glad that we were able to go ourselves and find out everything we needed to know uh, basically on our own steam instead of being led by somebody. But he talked about how there is freedom now, how there's a need to preach the gospel of Christ, how perhaps we could work together in doing so, how they have people uh, in Germany who have language skills and as it turned out, Igor Mertke's daughter is a professional translator who can translate into Ukrainian that we could use. And they really want to work together. I showed them the booklet, God's Holy Days. They hadn't seen it before, and they were fascinated. They're considering keeping the Holy Days. They haven't been, but they said they're open to the question of keeping the Holy Days. And they said, let's work together. They said, there's a lot of sinners out there. There's enough sinners out there for both of us to work with which brought up an interesting concept. Why do we have to include them as part of our church? Why can't we work together since there are enough sinners for both groups to work with? John Carlson came down from Bonn, and we started out by train for Ukraine. Would you believe that was actually the fastest way to get to where we needed to go? Uh, the airline delays into certain parts of Ukraine are measured not in hours, but days. And we figured that we could do better by reliably going by train. So we took a train to Budapest, and from there took another train to the Ukrainian-Hungarian border in a town called Zahone. Beyond that, there were no train schedules available from any travel service. You're basically at the end of the line, at the cliff, and you're on your own. John and I got to Zahone, got off the train, and we immediately got the distinct impression that this is not a tourist town. No taxis, no hotels. The last train for Ukraine had left. Another Russian on a train said, oh, I know there's, a, there's another border crossing for cars. It's about two kilometers away. 
why don't you walk with me and see if we can maybe get one of the cars in line to come back and pick you fellows up, and then you can go across the border that way. So I walked with him to try to get a car, and there was a long line of cars, long line of cars. In fact, the wait was measured coming the other direction in one to two days to cross the border. It was a little bit better coming from Hungary to Ukraine. Getting out was another story. I asked around if anybody would be interested to leave their spot in line to pick us up at the train station, and nobody wanted to do that. So I walked back the two kilometers to the train station, and by this time, John was saying, well, what do we do now? I said, I don't know. We better just take our luggage and walk over to the border crossing ourselves. And both of us are terrible packers. We took too many things. In fact, we had an unbelievable amount of things. I had a video camera. I had a portable computer. John had a portable computer. Uh, I had a whole suitcase full of Bibles in Ukrainian. And I said, how in the world are we going to get this across the border? We asked several cars on the streets if they would take us over there, would pay them to take us there. But for some reason, nobody wanted to take us. In fact, here we are walking out there. I can't believe I was doing this. Just two weeks ago, sitting there with my thumb, trying to hitchhike to the Ukrainian border. Nobody picked us up. In fact, one person almost ran me off the road. We finally got our things over to the Ukrainian border. And as we stand in line with all the cars, a man comes up to us and says, you have to have a car in order to cross the border. They won't let you just walk across. I thought, good night. We're, we're stuck. No hotels, no cars. Here we all, have all this luggage with us, and we look like Mutt and Jeff, John Carlson and myself, a very, very odd couple. But then out leaps a man and says, I will take you across the border. I'm going home to Vilnius, Lithuania, and I'll be glad to take you across the border. We still call him our... Lithuanian angel. His name is Romas Krunka. If you ever meet him, he is an angel. <laughs> Romas put us in his car, and two hours later, we nudge up to the border crossing. It took me another hour to get a visa. I really felt for Romas because they checked all of our luggage, found two computers, video camera, another camera, Bibles, and we thought we we're going to get Romus into trouble. And uh, he, did, he didn't get into trouble, but we felt badly for all he went through. He was just a wonderful person who very patiently hung in there with us, or we hung in there with him. We were supposed to have somebody meet us at the border, but they weren't there. Actually, they were waiting at the train crossing station, which already had the last train go. So um, we never caught up with them. But he took us to Ujgorod a town 20 kilometers north, and took us to the hotel, which was all barred. There was a big crowbar in the door. It wasn't exactly welcome to Ujgorod, but he knocked on the glass door and helped us to get into this hotel. And John and I then sat there wondering, what in the world are we really getting into? The next day, we tried to call the people, one of the two telephone numbers that we were given in Rokosova. None of the telephones worked. In fact, they didn't work the whole time that uh, we were there. We really were cut off from civilization. In fact, John and I were already planning at this time, how do we get out of here? Uh, after we make our visit to Rokosova, do we take that crazy border crossing or just how in the world do we get back to Germany? Well, 
We found at the hotel that they had air service four times a week. There was a 12-seater airplane that left from Ushgorod to Budapest. So that let's get reservations on that. And so we quickly went to the service bureau, which is everything but a service bureau. It's heavy on bureau, short on service. And they told us that, yes, that, tr that plane does leave. And uh, I said, we'd like to have reservations. Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I said, well, we're worried about it. We would like to know if we could get on that plane. No problem. You come back here in five days, and we'll get you on that plane. And we thought, well, it's only 12 seats. What if it's full? As it turned out, when we did fly back, we were the only two on that plane. <laughs> and they gave us each a bag of graham crackers. Anyway, from Ushgorod, we were considering the next day, how do we get to this little town of Rokosova that's hardly on the map? They told us that there was a train that took that 60-mile route, but it took five hours. Uh, hustling, bustling, 12 mile per hour uh, average. Or they said you may consider just paying somebody in dollars to take you, which we did. We found a taxi that took us there for $40, the both of us. And we came to Rokosova, the home village of Michael Palchi. We came to his daughter's home and she was very happy, overjoyed that we were there. And she said, there will be many people who want to see you and they will be coming soon. And sure enough, starting later that afternoon, they started coming one by one. The most prominent person of all was a man by the name of Ivan Pavli. He is the head of the church, the one that Michael Palchi, who attends our services now, by the way, and took the Passover with us this last spring, had designated as his replacement. He said he did not want to be the pastor, so he chooses not to be the pastor, but he is the lay leader or the lay head, whatever you want to uh, call his uh, particular role. And he asked us a lot of questions. He was extremely friendly, very good-natured, and told us that Michael Palchi had already informed him about us being there and that Michael Palchi's wish was that we stay with him. So we went over to his home, and more people started coming over. He had a home that was fairly good-sized by their standards, and there must have been 30, 40, maybe 50 people overall that just came over that first night. One person was the pastor of the church in the next village. Actually, it's a good-sized town, uh, 40,000 people, the town of Hust. Then another person was a name by the name of Victor Pavli, who was the director of a cooperative mission of all the churches. It was their outreach program. It was their mission, they called it, that helped the poor, the widows. Um, it helped war victims in Moldavia from the civil war that's been taking place, or that's taken a lull now for a month. And also it does their work of preaching the gospel to the public. He was a very energetic person, very dynamic, and very interested in, uh, in us. So all the leadership was right there. We sat around the table with little children all around, ladies with babushkas, you know, all around. It was just the most interesting experience as John and I were being questioned and as we questioned them. Before we had that first evening, we were taken to their house of prayer, which I had already made a few comments about.
it was truly an impressive building in really a town which is at the end of the earth. They had their own symbol of a big cup of wine and bread on the outside. Inside, as I mentioned, they had the Ten Commandments uh, prominently displayed. Uh, they had about one-third the chairs they needed for it, and the rest of the seating was uh, big makeshift benches. And that was their upper uh, upstairs auditorium. On the lower level, there was a cafeteria where they would hold uh, socials and uh, before and after services, or I'm not sure how they were going to organize it, but they had a place where 100 people could sit in one seating for dinners. The building was really done beautifully by standards of construction. You could see that these were people who really wanted to make it beautiful. Most of the church members are construction workers. And the reason for it is, is that they have not been able to go on in further and higher education because they don't go to church, they don't go to school on the Sabbath. And already since 49 and 56 and 74, where, whenever they came into the church, their children pretty much reach a dead end as far as how far they can uh, go in the educational system. And because of that, they end up teaching each other and have kind of apprentices. Uh, each helps one another to get into the building trade. And uh, because they've been in building so much and they have gotten to know each other so well, they really put together a beautiful building. The government uh, gave them a little bit of land for this and they plan to have it all complete by a year from now with the landscaping and everything else. Ivan Pavli himself is a construction worker or a contractor that has his own business and he manufactures this uh, artificial uh, granite. It's actually concrete with patterns of granite on it. It looked uh, real, very nice. He was hoping that perhaps uh, we could organize even and help some of the brethren over there be able to sell some of their uh, wares to the West. That evening then, as we were sitting at the table and all these people were questioning us and talking to us, the pastor of the church, and who tells us, tells John and I, you're going to stay at my home tonight. You'll be staying back here in Rokosova, but tonight I want you to come to our home in Hoost. And so he drove us over there. It's about 10 miles. And we spent the night with him. Probably talked to him till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. I found him to be a very, very kind man. He was about 35, 36 years old, who was very dedicated to serving. The next morning, Victor Pavli, the manager, you might say, or the head of the mission, and Vasil Mondic, the pastor, took us to the mayor of Hust. They said they were good friends of his, and he said that the mayor would like to meet us. He's always interested in meeting any Americans that come through. The mayor was a name by the name of Vladimir Koschak, and we were to have a 20-minute meeting with him. And he brought us into his council chambers. They had kind of a conference table. It was a very, actually a very nice office. And we talked to him for 20 minutes. Then it turned to half an hour, turned to 45 minutes into an hour. And we talked about all kinds of things, about progress, about rehabilitating the country, about making things work, about uh, perhaps assistance and aid from the United States. He asked us questions about how he could actually better the area and ask for any advice about how to deal with Slavic people. 
And we got to talking and we got carried away in our discussion. He was asking about what is it about the nature of Slavic people that really when they have a window of opportunity for making their country and building their country that they just can't seem to get it together. I said, there's a problem among Slavic people that they are not united. They fight and argue and bicker with one another and things come to a grinding halt. And the only thing that pushes it off dead center is somebody coming in with a strong hand and straightening it out. That's been the cyclical history of the Russians, Ukrainians, and Poles, that when they do have freedom, they can't seem to get things together. And he agreed heartily. He said, oh, that is so true, but how do I do it? He talked about how a building across the street had lost its heat, hot water heat, and he had sent somebody over there to repair the building, to repair the broken pipe. Pipe never got repaired through the whole day. People were calling him. So he went over there personally and saw the man who was supposed to repair the pipe just sitting around doing nothing. The man said, this is democracy. Why aren't you working? He says, well, this is democracy. I can do what I want. And then the man who was supposed to fix the building or fix the water pipe said, if you give me some vodka, I'll finish the job. And so the mayor did give him some vodka and the job was finished. But this points out a little bit of the problem that those people have. They aren't able to handle opportunity, freedom, free enterprise. Well, after our hour talk, he said, let's have some coffee in the reception room downstairs. And he took us down to the basement and they had a beautiful room set up and we talked. But before we left for the basement, he said, he says, I would like you to pray. And so we all stood up and I prayed for the city. I prayed for his progress. I prayed for God to help those people. He said, I'm a believer, I'm not a Sabbatarian, but I am a believer. He had also given this mission, Nazareth, a few rooms from an abandoned government building to use for a library, for lectures, and also to store their supplies. And he said that we as a church were always welcome to come to Hoost. He said he hoped that we would have literature for those people, that we'd have it in Ukrainian, in Russian, and that we could put our mark in their territory. I was very impressed by this young mayor. He was 35 years old, but very energetic, and a person who had a very can-do spirit. Interesting that the buildings that have been given over to the church there in Hoost, to the mission, were former Communist Party headquarters buildings. And the place where public Bible lectures were held, and the first one was held the Friday night that I was there, was the induction room for the Communist Party members. So it's interesting how tables have turned. We were given a tour of the mission, and uh, I recorded a lot of them speaking to us and explaining about the mission on videotape. They said, you have got to get your booklet. We talked about the booklet, God's Holy Days, which we have the Russian translation almost finished now. It's just about finished and just needs to go through a process of being edited by our people uh, to make sure that it sounds right in Russian and it has a church feel and sound to it. He said, you need to have your booklet about God's holy days available. He said, we have heard about the holy days, but we would like to know more. And we are very open to keeping the holy days. I thought that was uh, really quite revealing on his part because we told him about everything that we did and we gave him a picture of Mr. Tkach uh, as well. The rest of the day we spent in the city of Hoost. 
We went back to Rokosova, went back to the house of prayer and uh, toured that building for uh, probably another couple of hours and took many, many pictures, both still and video. I'll be showing some of them to Mr. Tkach tomorrow. We were very impressed by the people in that what they profess and what they believe, they practice. When we talk about persecution in this country, try to think of being a head of household with five children, and they do have large families. Uh, most of the church members' families we found had three, four, five, even six children, which is quite high by modern standards. They don't allow their children to go to school on Saturdays. During the time of the communists, they didn't allow their children to wear Lenin's insignia on their outfits, which was required dress in school. Their children refused to wear these insignia and stars. They refused to allow their children to wear the triangular red handkerchiefs of the young pioneers, the Komsomol and the Communist Party. Those three corners on the handkerchief represented entry level or being a young pioneer as a youth. Komsomol is the pre-step of going into the Communist Party and finally full membership. They considered that Satan's system of government and didn't allow their children to wear that. Also, they didn't allow their children or the young men did not serve in the military. In Russia, it's one thing about rejecting the military when you don't even have a draft. I'm not comparing our problems to theirs because I know that it is not wise to compare, but I'm just pointing out some of the difficulties that they've had to live through. They told us about their system of how they managed induction into the service. And some of, them, some of their men have served three years in prison and more. They had a strategy of where they would actually allow themselves to first go into the army, and then once they were inducted, they would then say that they did not want to use weapons of any kind. We found that they knew their Bibles quite well. These people are willing to die for what they have believed. And several of them told us about the time that they had spent in prison for their beliefs. One lady told us about the seven years she spent because she met with people in homes to praise and serve God. These people are Sabbatarians. They would keep the Passover. They did the foot washing. They did so many things that were so similar to ours. And there was a bond and a spirit between John Carlson and myself and these people that is very hard actually to even tell you about because after being with them for three, four days, we felt like we were among church people. I was called Brat Victor, Brother Victor. Then we had Brother John. Brother John and Brother Victor, along with Brother Ivan and Brother Oleg and all the other brothers. And we felt very, very close to them. And there was a bond that was developing between us that I guess is very hard to actually just let you know about. There are some differences between their beliefs and ours. And one is that they do believe in speaking in tongues. 90% of them do believe in tongue speaking. We did tell them that we did not practice this, and John Carlson and I went through our traditional explanation explaining how we believe that the gift of speaking in languages is certainly a valid one, but we don't take it as speaking in a language that other people didn't understand. It was a gift of being able to use different languages. And they were very tolerant of our explanation. I found that Many things that we explained to them was a matter of just explaining what we did and what we practiced and what we believed, 
but they also felt out of fairness that they explained to us what they believed, what they practiced, and why. And one thing I found is that they were very, very Bible-oriented and Bible-literate in their position. About the Passover, we found that 70% of them kept the Passover the same night that we did. 30% kept it on the next evening. And we had really quite an uh, animated discussion about why we kept the Passover when we did and why they kept it when they did. Among the 32 groups in Transcarpathia, there are variations from group to group as to what they believe. Some spoke in tongues, some did not. Some of those that spoke in tongues also kept the holy days. Some of those that kept the holy days didn't do something else. I finally, after two days there, we got to speaking very openly with them. I said, can you find me a group, I said, that doesn't speak in tongues, that keeps all the holy days, and keeps the Passover the evening of the 14th? He said, well, that's one combination we just don't quite have. But he was willing to take me to a pastor of a church that kept the holy days. His name was Vasil Tatsun, north of Hust. This pastor is also a person who's a beekeeper. We came to his home, and we found him to be a little bit of a gruff man, and we didn't really think that he thought very highly of us. We told him about all the holy days we kept, and we discussed them, and it was the same thing. I mean, they kept Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was so similar to us except that the last day of the feast was last great day, which is actually a technicality in some ways that was kept together, but they had commanded assemblies on all those days. And he said, I can tell you of other groups in the Caucasus that keep the holy days and the festivals, and some in northern Ukraine, and some in the outlying provinces of the former USSR. I said, how come there are believers like that in the outlying provinces of the USSR? He says, well, because they were sent out there. The government hated them. So they sent them out to Kyrgyz and Kazakhstan and to these other areas. But these people have a network among them of people who have similar beliefs. And those who keep uh, days in, in a very similar manner. Well... I was absolutely dumbfounded or just surprised in talking to people that had believed the same thing. He asked us a lot of questions, but we found it to be a little bit gruff and didn't seem like he was all that interested in talking to us. But we were mistaken because two days later, this was on the Sunday that we left, he made a special trip over to Rokosova to spend another hour with us, just praising God, he said, to find people who believe the same as he did. And he wants to maintain contact with us. Friday evening came. And we had a choice of whether to go to a public Bible lecture, this was going to be their very first public Bible lecture to the outside public, or to go to a Friday night service. They have services at this house of prayer Friday night, Sabbath morning, and Sabbath afternoon. Well, as it turned out, it was best that we go to services in the town because it was a long way back to Hoost. Uh, in some ways, I, I could have made it to that first lecture because they had two brand new contacts that night and they really wanted me to give the lecture and explain what we believe. They're very, very tolerant as far as letting uh, John Carlson and myself do anything that we wanted. But Friday night we had the service 
And it began with the deacon standing up. In fact, the pastor of Rokosovo was not in town. About 40% of the church is actually out of town right now in either Czechoslovakia or in central Ukraine uh, on jobs. They're either picking tomatoes in Czechoslovakia or on a construction project in Ukraine. Uh, this area of Transcarpathia has got quite a bit of unemployment. Anyway, Friday night, they began the service with a hymn, and then there was prayer. Before we even went to the service, as the sun started setting, this family, the Pavli family, lost John Carlson and myself and the whole family, knelt down and said, we all want to pray together. What was surprising to us is that they all prayed at the same time. This was just something that wasn't, we weren't used to. And when they knelt down, they bowed their heads to the ground. And John and I felt a little bit strange at first, but be surprised how quick you get used to it, you know, being in that uh, environment. We walked over to the service, as I said. We started the Bible study or the Friday night meeting. And then I was asked to speak. And they asked me to speak for about, oh, 20 minutes to uh, half an hour. And I stood up and... I read them part of a letter that Dr. Hay and I had written as kind of a coworker type sounding letter about telling those people how joyous we were to meet with them, how happy we were with the uh, contact that we had with Michael Palche and his people in Florida, and how we wanted to work together and, and so forth. Then I talked to them about how our work got started in the United States, about Mr. Armstrong, about how his wife led Mr. Armstrong to the Sabbath, in the same way that Michael Palcha himself was led by others and shown that he ought to be keeping the Sabbath. I stressed all the similarities that we had. It was strange. This is the first time I had ever given a sermon in Ukrainian or a talk to a group of people. The people stood there very somber. They're all looking at me. In services, they have all the women on one side of the hall and all the men on the other side, very similar to what it was like when I went to the Orthodox Church. I talked to them about how Mr. Armstrong died in 1986 and how his replacement and his successor has been Mr. Joseph Tkach, who also is of Rusin roots, and how he came, or his father, Mr. Tkach Sr.'s father, came from Svidnik in Czechoslovakia and passed along Mr. Tkach's greetings to these people, and they felt a con common bond between us and them. The next day, we had services. In the morning, John Carlson spoke. He spoke about 25 minutes and gave a sermonette, you might say, a split sermon, whatever, uh, about unity, and quoted Psalm 133, verse 1 and talked about how wonderful it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Then he went on to show some of the things that make for unity, and he spoke about respect and honor and cooperation. Then, after this, I gave my sermon and repeated some of the things from the evening before, because not everyone uh, was there the evening before. And then I spoke about the Holy Days. That was the subject of my sermon. I spoke about why the holy days are important to us and that they are a shadow of things to come. And I went through the 23rd chapter of the book of Leviticus showing how the first holy day or the first festival is the Sabbath and that how from there there's really very little transition in going into the annual Sabbaths. 
And afterwards, some of the people said, you know, we, we're, we want to keep these holy days. I said, what's holding you back? They said, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is, is that some of the people who keep the holy days in this region are the more aggressive ones. They keep trying to tell us we should keep these holy days, and they are the less tolerant. Plus, he said, some of the people who keep the holy days in that area, all the men wear beards. They asked, do we wear beards? I said, well, do I, do I look like I'm wearing a beard? <clears throat> and then he said, the third thing is, is that most of the people who are the ones who keep the holy days also believe in circumcision. I said, well, we don't believe that it's a necessary thing. In our country, we do it more for hygienic uh, reasons. It's not a matter of doctrine. And I said, that was settled a long time ago, back in the book of Acts, Acts 15. And they were very happy to hear that. He said, you know, that is quite a relief to hear you say that. <laughs> they said, all we believe in as far as days that we worship on are the weekly Sabbath and the Passover. And it's like our faith and our religion needs something more to dress it up, as they put it. And the holy days sound wonderful. So I hope that we get the booklet there as quickly as we can. When telling them what was in the booklet, they said, you know that when this booklet is available in Transcarpathia, that it is going to light a fire in our area. I'm not sure what light a fire means. Uh, maybe the booklet can do it and we can be here. But anyway, we have something there where we have an open-mindedness towards what we believe that was very refreshing. We also found that the pastor... Vasil Mondic, is the organizer for a Seventh-day Church of God, not the Seventh-day Church of God in this country, but of Sabbatarian churches, you might say more accurately, of Sabbatarian churches in uniting, not only in Transcarpathia, but as kind of a chairman of setting a steering committee to form some type of structure of the churches in Transcarpathia, in Romania, and Moldavia and that people from all over the world will be coming to this conference, which will be held November 1st to about November 4th. And the conference will be held right in this house of prayer that we were at in Rokosova. I told him that my job was working in church administration for Mr. Tkach, and that we had a church structure and explained just exactly what we did. They were just aghast that we had such a centralized structure. Second of all, I explained to them how we have a reporting system. A reporting system? What do you mean, a reporting system? I said, well, our pastors, every month they list the sermons that they give. They tell us about the trends in the area, and they send us the attendance. They send you the attendance? They said, oh, I don't know if, we can, if our, our pastors are ready for that. It says the only ones who took attendance in communist times were the KGB. They said they're the ones who wanted to find out how many people we had, where they met. And they're just not ready to start a system of reporting, of bureaucratizing a ministry. Although they said, that's a very good idea. But I don't know how many of our pastors will, be, will go for it. So there are several things that they are simply not ready for. But the question is, do they ever have to be ready for that in that type of culture? They wanted me to return in November and give a lecture to the assembled representatives of the churches about church organization 
about structure, about how it's worked for us, and try to build some contact bridges and bonds between our church over here, the 132,000 now that attend the Worldwide Church of God, and their people over there. There will be people there from Poland, from Kazakhstan, from Kyrgyz, from Germany, and I believe even from the United States. But the one who is on the committee, the head of organizing all this, was the man that we were staying with, Vasil Mondic. And he wanted us to take an active part in it. Being so close to the feast and trying to sort out my mind, is, is this what we really want to do, is still an open question to me as to whether we go through with this. He said, this conference will only be an organizational conference. He says, then we plan to hold a doctrinal council sometime, maybe next year, to be able to iron out some of the questions of doctrine. He says, maybe another week-long conference. And I said, good luck if you can sort out everything doctrinally in four to five days. I'm just reporting to you what we had seen and what we had heard. Something also happened in the service that was interesting. John Carlson and I were just most unwilling to hear the first person speak in tongues. And most of the service went by normally. But there were a few moments when somebody would pray and pray at a very animated pace. And it seemed like they shifted into gears and they started speaking in a different tongue. One was a man and he spoke for about a minute or so in this unknown tongue. Sure unknown to me. It sounded like Mark Kaplan yesterday at the afternoon service in his uh, Hebrew part. Not his regular part. I mean, talking about his Hebrew part. And then he went back into Ukrainian. In the afternoon service, a woman had a vision during my sermon. She should have been probably listening to the sermon, but anyway, she had a vision during my sermon. And she was asked to speak her vision. And this was what her vision was about our church. She says, I see a church, a bride adorned for the return of Christ. Half of the bride is wearing heavenly apparel. The other half is wearing earthly apparel. Take your earthly apparel and change it for heavenly apparel. Well, maybe she was right on. I don't know. But uh, you know, all, any one of us, you know, I mean, in our church have people who need to change from one to the other. But the leader of the church came right down after the sermon, immediately apologetic as all could be, and said, Victor, he says, please, you know, just, I, I hope you didn't take the, the vision wrong. He said that, uh, be grateful that half of you is wearing heavenly apparel. So I said, well, praise God, you know, <laughs> very, very thankful for that. These people, on the last day that we were visiting with them, said that this was one of the highlight experiences of all the years of their church in Transcarpathia. They said they had sent Michael Palchi, or he immigrated from there as their head, you might say. They had no real formal way in which they were organized, but he was the one that everybody knew, that everyone respected. Everyone I talked to knew who Michael Palchi was. And they said that this man has done something very special 
and bringing your people and our people together. We have prayed for 10 years that there might maybe be some people like you in another part of the world. And we feel like our prayers have come, have been answered. And second of all, he says, the Pentecostals have been chiding us for years, saying, why do you keep the Sabbath? Why do you respect the law the way you do? Why do you eat clean and unclean meats from Leviticus 11 as the basis of your faith? There are no such people in the world. You're all alone. And he says, now we can tell the Pentecostals there are other people that are just like we are. That we can praise God. We can be very thankful that we have people that are just like we are. And I honestly felt a very strong bond with these people. I told them about the Feast of Tabernacles, about how we keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They were all interested and very, very fascinated. I can see a time when these people will be keeping, for the most part, the 3,000, or at least many of them, be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. I'll say this, is it probably won't be kept in similar ways to us in some of the details. If these people do not believe in drinking, I don't think that we should enforce some of our standards and values on these people. These people believe in coming out of the world and not allowing their homes to be infiltrated with the influences of the world, which I feel in some ways we have allowed ourselves to have too much of that influence. In fact, in some ways, I feel like if we had our people and their people meet together that we would have to be very, very tolerant and very respectful of where they stand and look up to where they stand instead of try to make them drink and make them uh, do things and join us. As they said, as I said at the very beginning, perhaps we could work together. I don't know, maybe this is a new way which we could reach other people and not feel like they have to become part of our direct government. At to, up to this point, they feel very, very open to our teachings and have been very respectful and very kind. And everything that they do, they have tried to explain to us on the basis of the Bible. I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 9. This was back in Christ's time when Christ and his group of 12 went up and down and did their work. John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him. We stopped him. You're not part of our group. You don't have that power. You don't have that right. Does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can, can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Can we accept someone else who calls us brothers, who will keep the holy days, who keeps the Passover, who has their heart open to us? Can we accept them in this manner? I think it might be difficult for some because of a way that we have been brought up to think. I'm not judging that at all. 
All I'm saying is what I saw and what I perceived and the contact that we've had with these people. People will ask us questions, where did they pick up this knowledge? Is this another church era? Is this another lost church era? I don't know. People are asking me, is this the Sardis church? I really don't know. They sure haven't come from a long succession of generation after generation of people that have been keeping the Sabbath. It's very similar to our church in our time, which sprung up spontaneously through Mr. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong was an attendee in the Seventh-day Church of God, but basically he went off on his own, started preaching to the public, and it was through his efforts, through his work, that God blessed him and made us the church that we are. I think that if we would work in Transcarpathia, one possibility is, is that these people want to help and support us and give us library space and even help distribute our booklets. The last thing I would like to, would want to do would be to draw people from those believers and draw them to our church. That is a no-no. But I can see going out to the public, and as the first person told us, there are enough sinners out there for both of us, to go out there to the public to preach Christ, to bring people to repentance, and to help. I can see that. I can see working together in that way. On the last Sunday, that, on the last day, which was a week ago yesterday, we spent some time at the Nazareth Mission, and they told us about their needs, some of the things that they are doing. They're helping the poor, they're helping widows, they're helping war refugees in Moldavia. They told us about what's happened there. Thousands of people, I don't think we realize, have been killed in the fighting between the Russian army, which is supposed to be bringing peace, but so far has probably killed several thousand people. And I guess that brings peace eventually. You kill them and then there's quiet. And they told us about how they've been in touch with brethren down there and how that none of the brethren were killed, but how many of the brethren had lost their homes. Their homes were shelled, and their homes are without glass, and they're working on getting their homes reglazed and getting them ready for the winter. They're talking about bringing in grain and money to help their brothers down in Moldavia. John Carlson and I contributed to that effort. They said they needed transportation, they needed a vehicle to carry things down there, and they drove us in the vehicle that they took down there the months before, delivering grain and other staples. It was the most awful van that I had ever seen in my life. You could see the engine inside. There was no dashboard at all. They drove this beater 250 miles down to the Dniester River to help their brothers. Somehow my heart really went out to the efforts, the love, the care, the reaching out and supplying the needs of one another. And then to have them tell us that we have met no people that are closer than you in heart and in spirit. We feel like brothers. Please don't forget us. We know that Michael Palchi has done something in bringing us and you together. It's amazing what these people have done 
in a totalitarian system and for how long they have done it and how they have survived and actually how they have grown. They are people who are very poor, they have very little, and yet they're able to do so much with it. My proposal is, I'm not even sure exactly what direction we should take completely, but literature from our church and the teachings that we have needs to be disseminated in that area because they have no literature. In fact, would you believe that they are, they are distributing literature from Sunday-keeping groups that may be close enough to what they teach? They take a little from this, a little bit of, the, a little bit of religi- uh, literature from this group, and a little bit of literature from another group to try to teach about Christ. And if we could supply them the tools that way, they would jump at it immediately. They told us that. Number two, I feel that we could supply and help with humanitarian aid. John Carlson and I made a $200 contribution to their Nazareth mission. They said that this was about what all the churches collected after one Sabbath to help people in Moldavia. If we can get supplies to them, or even money to buy those things, it really wouldn't be that much. A loaf of bread costs two cents for a two-pound loaf of bread. So you can kind of imagine how much you could do by the heavily government-subsidized prices to help those people, and especially helping Sabbath keepers in other parts of the world. We could do it. It wouldn't cost that much. It wouldn't be that much. It would be just a matter of willingness to do it. And thirdly, if we could have some type of program of preaching to the public. I found that that area is wide open for the ability to preach. It takes absolutely no extra effort. Those people would have a speak in their churches. Those people would have a speak in public meetings. They would even help set this up for us. The five days that we were there, we established a bond that there is no way that we could have done any other way. But by living with them, by talking with them, by being totally upfront and honest in what we believe, and being tolerant and being open to what they are. Above all, I think that we should treat these people as brothers. So this was a report then about what I had seen. Who is Christ going to return to? One minister asked me, are these people converted? But believe me, many of them are. There's no doubt in my mind at all as to the conversion of these people, of seeing the Holy Spirit work, working in them, in how they treat one another, and how seriously they look at the Word of God. I believe that Christ is going to come back to many of these people. I think Christ is going to come back to many of our people right here. He's not going to come back to all of those people. Neither will he come back, or not all the people in this church, be around to receive Jesus Christ. But what is the bride of Christ? The bride of Christ is comprised of those who are clean and white, who have stepped out of this world, who are looking with joy, who have repented of their sins, 
and are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. That's what this day, the Feast of Trumpets, is all about. I know that this meeting, and perhaps I'm somewhat even emotional about what I had seen, what I had experienced, what John Carlson and I had seen together, because it's just happened last week, and it was just last Sunday that we said goodbye to these people, and I hope not forever, but that we can be in that part of the world. I felt something very special, and a very special bonding with them. When I kept the Sabbath with them, I felt truly one in spirit on that day, on those hours between sunset Friday night and sunset Saturday night. When we fellowshiped, when we talked, when we discussed matters, I could have felt no more comfortable with any other member of the Church of God than I did with these people that we had visited. Just one more thing. It's almost time for me to quit. After our visit to Ukraine, we went to St. Petersburg, Russia. This was the first time that I was able to visit St. Petersburg instead of Leningrad. This was my seventh trip to that city. We talked with our radio station managers and producers that we have known for three years. Jerry and Tammy Rehor from our church are doing an exceptional job. They're real troopers. They've been there eight months now and have done a phenomenal job in representing us as a church. It's very interesting to hear Jerry and Tammy both speaking Russian. They have really picked up on a language surprisingly well. They could tell the cab driver where to go and we got where Jerry thought we would be going. Our project there is going to reach a conclusion as of about March 1st, we have fulfilled what we've wanted to do. We have wanted to establish friendships. We wanted to establish a relationship with translators and uh, have an ongoing bond to where we know those people well and we feel that we have achieved that because of economic conditions, not only in our own work, but also at the radio TV station where they look a bit askance at foreigners taking jobs from local people now that they have gone to kind of a private enterprise, we feel it's best to discontinue that project for now. But we were able to at least say goodbye in a very nice way and hope to be able to still maintain contact by letter and perhaps an occasional trip to Russia to keep our relationships alive. So let's prepare for the return of Jesus Christ. Let's also be considerate of the 7,000 others who have not bowed down to Baal and open our minds to really the complete bride of Christ that he will meet in the air when Christ returns. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for the Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com. 
vkubik at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.